So if you have a Bible with you, or an app that you read your Bible on, <clears throat> we're going to be in the book of Revelation, and we're going to be uh, reading sections of the end of chapter 19 and into uh, chapter 20 of, of Revelation. <clears throat> so we're on the home straight now of, of this book, the last book of the Bible. And what we found as we've looked at it over these few weeks is that Revelation is a tapestry. It's a tapestry of visions. It's a plethora of pictures. It is not a logical or chronological argument. And some of you, I would probably say most of you, if not all of you, and I would say all of us, <laughs> have felt stretched at times by this series. A little perplexed, perhaps, or confused at times. But that's okay. If you remember at the start of the series, I said it's, it's more like looking at an impressionist painting. You don't want to get too close to look at the pixels or the details, but as you step back, you see this great picture that is painted, this great tapestry that is created. And hopefully, as we've progressed through the book of Revelation, you are seeing the big picture, this revelation of Jesus Christ. Hopefully, you are seeing Jesus, the exalted Lamb of God, who was slain for the sins of the world, the conquering Lion of Judah, and the prevailing church, and ultimately the utter defeat of Satan and his accolades. And hopefully you have felt and you will feel as we draw to a close over these next couple of weeks, the challenge of discipleship, the call that is in Revelation from start to finish for faithful endurance. And the ultimate message that we find in this book, however we read it and interpret the difficult passages, is that Christ wins, the church prevails, and there is a future hope. Revelation, I think, is a book that comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. The passage that we're looking at this week has been described as the most complex passage in the most complex book of the Bible. It's, there are discussions around the thousand-year reign of Christ and the binding of Satan and what that means. But as with all of our Revelation, I don't want us to become too myopic in our view, uh, too focused on the detail, missing out on the glorious big picture of what we are reading here. So we'll do our best this morning as we look at this passage, and I hope that once again you feel a little stretched and perplexed in places, as I do, but also enthused and inspired and excited. We've got three weeks left uh, today and another two weeks, and this week includes the final judgment of Satan and the beasts and, and all of their accolades and the final judgment of all peoples before the great throne of God. And then we're going to spend two weeks in heaven, if that's all right with you. <laughs> We've had, <laughs> I don't know how much more judgment I can take. 
And following last week's um, announcement of the wedding supper of the Lamb, if you remember that passage that we looked at last time, and the, and the peals of hallelujahs that rang out, out of heaven, we were thinking, weren't we, of uh, as, as Babylon fell, the great Babylon, the harlot that rode the beast, the, the enemy cities of God, and, and ultimately this praise and this hallelujah rises up in heaven that inspired Handel's Messiah. And I heard of one of the small groups this week that played Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus in their small group, and they all stood up and listened to it and uh, had a great time uh, joining in. And hopefully also, as we've looked at this book, we're provoked to worship and to do what we said this morning, to gaze, to raise our, our gaze towards heaven and to look heavenward as we pull back the curtain on these amazing visions, as we look through this section this morning, we'll see the same phrase that we've seen repeated time after time throughout Revelation. And then I saw, and then I saw, and I saw. So first of all, let's read from Revelation chapter 19, 11 to 16, and the picture of Jesus riding on a white horse. 19, 11 to 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and true, with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We see here that he is called Faithful and True, you remember uh, Revelation 1, where Jesus is referred to as the faithful witness, Revelation 1.5? We read here about this Jesus riding the word of God, riding on a white horse, that his eyes are blazing like a blazing fire. We remember that from chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 14, this vision of the Son of Man with eyes that are blazing like fire. We read here in this passage that out of his mouth comes a sharp uh, double-edged sword, which we which we read again in chapter 1, this vision of the Son of Man. And he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And we remember chapter 5 of Revelation, where we remember a lamb looking as though it had been slain. And he will rule them, we read here, of this rider on the white horse. He will rule them with an iron scepter. And if you remember the woman that gave birth to a son, a male child, in chapter 12 of Revelation, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, we read there, which comes from Psalm 2, that reference. So we have here Jesus riding on a white horse, and he is called the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we read in chapter 1 of uh, Revelation that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. But the main weapon of his warfare against Satan and against the nations that rise up against the people of God is the sword that comes out of his mouth. 
Remember that we are told in Revelation that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. The great weapon of our warfare as the church of Jesus Christ by which we will overcome is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that we preach. Paul said when he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, he said, we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. Paul said, we preach Christ and him crucified. And this is one of our values as a church is that we are a Bible-based church. We believe in the gospel. We believe in the inherent power of the Bible, the word of God. And it was Luther that said, I, I, I would never want to defend it. I'd rather unleash it. <laughs> I'd rather unleash the word of God and all of its power. And this is our primary weapon. And this is the vision that John has here as he looks and sees the rider on a white horse. And we see as we read on from verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur and the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. We've seen, is it Hitchcock's The Birds, the movie? <laughs> We've got this, again, a slightly grotesque image here. But it marks what, what we're reading here is the final destruction of, of the beast that we've looked at in previous chapters and the false <coughs> prophet. Remember, they were referred to as the beast out of the land and the beast out of the sea or the beast and the false prophet. And uh, we talked about the governmental powers and the political powers and economic powers and, and false religion that rises up against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now this great supper of God that we've read about here is not to be confused with the great wedding supper of the Lamb that we read last week. This is the great supper of God and it's a form of judgment as, the, as these birds feast on the enemies of God. From Revelation 12 onwards, it's as if we've been reading a play and we've watched the introduction of these various enemies of God's people and of the church that these first century Christians are suffering under. We've seen the introduction of the, the great dragon, uh, of Satan himself. Then we've seen the introduction of the, the beasts, the beast of the land and the beast of the sea or the false prophet. And then we've seen the introduction of the great harlot, this great city Babylon, which represents any city and any governmental structure that rises up against the people of God. And then one by one, as we read through Revelation, we see that they are destroyed one after the other. In 17 and 18, we read about the destruction of the harlot who rode the beast. And then we see here the destruction of the prophet, 
the false prophet and the beast. And finally, we will see in chapter 20 the destruction of Satan himself, who is bound and thrown into the lake of fire. Again, this is not a chronological set of events, but a theological and visual explanation of the ultimate defeat of Satan and his hordes at the end of time. And we read on in Revelation chapter 20 then about these thousand years and Satan's ultimate doom. Let's read Revelation 20 verses 1 to 10. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, and he locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. And I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What is this thousand years that we read of here? What does it mean that Satan is bound up for a thousand years? There are basically four major different interpretations of this thousand year passage of time. Um, four schemes of the end times, if you like. And we're not going to so survey all four of them this morning. We don't have the time for that. But I will be exploring one of them, which lines up with how I have read and how I read Revelation and the way that we've been interpreting the whole book as we've read through it. I believe that the thousand-year number here is a symbolic number, like all the other symbolic numbers in Revelation that we've been looking at. We've had lots of sevens, the number of complete, completeness. We've had seven bowls of wrath and seven trumpets and seven seals and seven horns on the lamb. We've had the number 144,000, which is 12 times 12 times 10 times 10, or 12 times 12 times 1,000. We've had uh, the other mentions of thousands, and we've had the mentions of three and a half and um, 42 months and 1,260 days. And, and all of these numbers that uh, Revelation uses are symbolic. It's, it's called numerology. And, and we've also noted as we've gone through that, that, that um, Revelation is full of imagery, that it's full of symbolism and, 
and pictures. It's apocalyptic literature. So the dragon we read here is chained by an angel and thrown into the abyss. The beasts that have risen up from the land and the sea. We've read about a harlot or a great prostitute who rides on the back of a scarlet beast. We've read about a lamb with seven horns. And we've read about uh, seven candlesticks and seven trumpets and the bowls of wrath being poured out onto the earth. So I believe that as these great pictures and visions and symbols of God's judgment and God's redemptive plan are poured out, I also believe that the numbers are symbolic and representative. So I believe that these thousand years, this millennium, represents the time between the first coming of Jesus, which we've been talking about this morning in the advent of Christ. Uh, as he came that first time, as we celebrate at Christmas, advent means coming. And uh, as, he, as he came that first time, the millennium is between that first coming and Jesus' second coming. He is coming again and, and will initiate a final judgment and then there will be a new heavens and a new earth. In other words, I believe that the millennium is the, is the age of the triumph of the gospel that was started by Jesus Christ through his death and his resurrection and his ascension. So between the first coming of Jesus, which we celebrate this Christmas, and the second coming of Jesus, which we are waiting for. I believe that we're living in this thousand-year period now. And it says here that Satan is bound for a thousand years. Is Satan really bound now? Is he not active? Is he not active in this world? But I also believe that Satan was bound in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we read in Mark chapter 3, Verses 22 to 27. The scribes came down from Jerusalem and they were saying about Jesus as they watched him heal people and cast out demons out of people. These teachers of the law, these scribes, they came down from Jerusalem and they said of Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by Satan himself. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to himself, Jesus did. He called these teachers over. And he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, is but coming but he's coming to an end. But no one, Jesus said to these teachers, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods until he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. The word to bind that Jesus used there is in the Greek is deo. It's the same word that is used in Revelation chapter 20, which speaks of Satan being bound for a thousand years. And in his ministry, through his life and through his death, in the inauguration of his kingdom, Jesus was making clear to these religious leaders that Satan was being bound. Jesus was going into the house of the strong man and binding him up and plundering his goods. How am I casting out these demons, Jesus was saying. I am plundering the house of the strong man. These people who are possessed and demonized, 
I am going to set them free. And through his life and through his death and through his resurrection, Jesus bound Satan. And so we also see in Luke chapter, in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 20, we, we reflected on this previously as we talked about uh, in an earlier chapter about this vision of, of the great dragon and the great battle that took place and, and the, the dragon being hurled down to earth, thrown out of heaven. And Jesus sent out, when he was on this earth, he sent out 72 of his followers to share his mission, to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to set the captives free. And when they came back, they were so excited by what they'd seen. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice at this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We'll get to that bit in a moment. The word that's used there for casting down, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, is the same that's used in Revelation chapter 12, when the great dragon is hurled down. Now as Jesus prepares to go to the cross and to die for our sins, the sins of the world, the lamb that was slain, in John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, Jesus says these words, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. In Revelation chapter 20, we read that the purpose of binding Satan is so that he can no longer deceive the nations. He can no longer deceive the nations. And Jesus says, now, as I go to the cross, will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up on that cross, I will draw all nations, all peoples, to myself as I am lifted up. So in Revelation 12, verse 7, when there is war in heaven, Satan is hurled down and he is referred to as the one who leads the whole world astray. And in John chapter 12, as Jesus prepares to go to the cross, Satan is cast out. Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw people to myself. And in Colossians 2, verse 15, it says that Jesus, on the cross, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. I think sometimes we underestimate what Jesus did on the cross and the defeat that he handed to Satan. Utterly, utterly bound him, utterly cast him down and destroyed the works of sin. What did Jesus say in 1 John 3 verse 8? It says, the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. To bind the strong man, to loot his house, to take him captive, to cast him down, to stop him deceiving the nations, to inaugurate the kingdom of God, 
and to birth the church. So on the day of Pentecost, the gospel is preached to thousands of people. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. The church of Jesus Christ is birthed. And the gospel is preached. And thousands come to salvation. And the mission of God commences and marches on. And Satan is bound, restricted, can no longer deceive the nations. He cannot strike down the church. I will build my church, Jesus says. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Satan is on a leash. We sing a song and we're going to sing it at the end of our service today. It's the King of Kings and we, we, we sing these words. And the, and the morning that you rose, all of heaven held its breath till that stone was moved for good. For the Lamb had conquered death. And the dead rose from their tombs. And the angels stood in awe for the souls of all who'd come to the Father are restored. And the church of Christ was born. Then the Spirit lit the flame. Now the gospel truth of all shall not kneel and shall not faint. By his blood and in his name, in his freedom, I am free for the love of Jesus Christ who has resurrected me. This is, says Kevin DeYoung as we read this text, this is a missions text. In AD 100, Less than 1% of the world's population were Christian. Less than 1%. Only 6% had been evangelized. By about AD 500, 20% of the world were Christians. 30% had been evangelized. And then came the age of Christendom, as it's referred to, and the church growth stagnates for centuries. But then in the 18th century, the modern missionary movement was birthed. And by 1900, 35% of the world's population were Christians and 46% had been evangelized. In 2000, roughly the same percentage of the world are Christians, but of course the number is much greater. 35%, about a third of the world's population. And it's estimated that around 73% of the world have received a viable witness to Jesus Christ. So as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come. And so we see this progression. So as I read about a thousand years, as I read this book, I read the period of the church that is between the first and the second coming of Jesus. I see that Satan is bound. Yes, he's still active, but he is ultimately defeated. And in the meantime, until Jesus returns, those that die in the Lord will reign with him. And so we read on in chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, when the thousand years comes to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison he will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog. In every corner of the earth, he will gather them together for battle. A mighty army as numberless as sand among the seashore. And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people and the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. 
Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur and joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Gog and Magog here, they're mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39 as nations that rose up against Israel. And we've already read about this end battle. We've read about it several times throughout the book of Revelation. It's the same battle that's mentioned, the battle of Armageddon, presented as we read about the sixth bowl of wrath in chapter 16 of Revelation, the final battle. And it's the same battle that's mentioned uh, as the war on the Lamb that is talked about in chapter 17 and chapter 19. Is reiterated here in chapter 20, the great final battle. In the Greek, it's called the battle. It is the final battle, the end of the age. And in each of these battle scenes, as you read back throughout Revelation, the finality of the final battle is, is too final for these passages to be anything other than varied descriptions of the same end time moment, the final conquering of Satan, the, 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 the uh, development and the birth of a new heavens and a new earth, which we'll be looking at in the next couple of weeks. This is how Paul, the Apostle Paul, describes the same final battle at the end of time. He says, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. It is a non-battle in one sense. I don't know how, I mean, I have heard various interpretations of Armageddon and that Gog and Magog represent Russia coming from the north, and, but I don't think it's speaking of those things. I, because ultimately it is a non-battle. These, these troops gather up against the people of God and God destroys them. <laughs> Jesus destroys them with the breath of his mouth. There is no great final battle in that sense. But that great final battle has happened and is happening through the word of God and his testimony and the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached throughout all nations. Now, as I've said, there are different views on the order of the thousand years and what it represents. And there may be those listening that disagree with the way I've interpreted it. But wherever you land on that, I think ultimately what John is portraying to his first century readers and to us, as we've said there, is that the Lamb wins. (laughs) Jesus wins. (laughs) These various views of the millennium, they're called called various things, premillennialist, postmillennialist, amillennialist, I can't even say it, never mind understand it. But I'm with those that say I'm a (laughs) panmillennialist. I believe it will all pan out in the end. (laughs) So I'm not going to get bogged down with that aspect. But what John is showing the church, what John is showing us, as they think of their friend who's been killed, and as they think of their leaders who've been uh, murdered, and as they face persecution and they're tempted to compromise with Rome and they are suffering as the people of God, and they're facing economic turmoil and challenges in their workplace and all of these things. What John is doing is he pulls back the curtains of heaven. He's he's saying we're on the winning side. The lamb wins. Satan is ultimately conquered. 
and all of his accolades. And as Sinclair Ferguson says as he preaches through this text, he says this shows us the reality of Satan's activity and captivity. It shows us the power of Christ's victory, the security of God's people, and the finality of God's judgment. As I said, this book, it comforts the afflicted, but it afflicts the comfortable. And this is the final outcome. And so we come, as I wrap up this morning, we come to the final judgment seat of Christ in the next section of chapter 20. Let's just read it, the the final section of chapter 20, verse 11. And then I saw, you see, see, I saw, verse 1, I saw, verse 4, and then I saw, verse 11, a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up their dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up their dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We see here this moment of the final judgment of all peoples. The great white throne is described as. What does this mean for us? There are described here two sets of books. There are the books and then there is the book, the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. And only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will not be judged to eternal condemnation and thrown in the lake of fire. In the books, the books we read are written our every action, everything that we have ever done, God has not missed anything. But as Daryl Johnson says, and these are his words, he says, you should see the book on me. On every page, sin after sin. On every page, confession after confession. And on every page, erasure after erasure. Pages stamped with words like forgiven, pardoned, cancelled. It's a very messy book because of the strange eraser the judge uses. It leaves a red mark on each line, red because of the blood that flows from the eraser. The book on me has lots of bloodstains in it. And this leads to the second good news about the books. The other book, the Lamb's Book of Life, It lists the names, yes, but more importantly, it lists the deeds of the Lamb. The book on me lists my deeds. The Lamb's book lists his deeds. His deeds are done on behalf of sinners like me. At the final judgment, the book on me is going to be opened. And then the book on Jesus is going to be opened. 
And then the book on Jesus is going to be placed over the book on me. And in place of my deeds, the court sees his deeds. And so one of the questions that's asked on the evangelism course, Evangelism Explosion, is what would you say if you were to die tonight and find yourself standing before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you enjoy eternal life with me? Let me rephrase the question posed in the words and the images of Revelation chapter 20. When you join the great and the small that stand before the great white throne of God and God asks you, why should I let you enter the new city, the new heaven and the new earth and not cast you into the lake of fire, what will you say? Daryl Johnson says, funerals are never pleasant events. When a believer dies, and when he or she has borne clear evidence of being born again, there is a joy in the sorrow, sometimes great joy. And I always say something like this, we are all going to die. And each of us is going to give an accounting for our lives. And on that day, we have two options. The first option is to take our stand on the basis of what we have done with our lives. And the second option is to take our stand on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done with his life. I shall exercise option two. I find no hope in option one. And this is what I plan to say at the final accounting. This is Daryl Johnson writing. Jesus, you see my sins, but Jesus, you shed your blood for me. You claimed me for your own. You wrote my name in your book, and I will hear him say, I did indeed, and I will fall at his feet, a puddle of gratitude and joy. As we've worked our way through the revelation of Jesus Christ, we have asked questions like, who can stand under the judgment of God? Who can stand or face the ultimate true and worthy justice of God that is painted right through these pages? And yet the Bible tells us God does not want anyone to perish. But he wants everyone to be saved and to inherit eternal life. That well-known verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not face the second death, but they will inherit eternal life. But what we have seen painted in various images and with various symbols and various numbers is we must be marked by the Lamb and not by the mark of man, the mark of the beast. We must be forgiven and covered by the blood of the Lamb. We must be invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We must have our name written in the Lamb's book of life if we are to be given entrance 
to the new heavens and the new earth. And this is the only way that we can stand before the judgment throne of God. It's the only way to put our faith, our trust, our hope in the Lamb of God who John the Baptist said takes away the sin of the world. If you were to die tonight, if you were to stand before the judgment throne of God, what would you plead? It's no good pleading on your good deeds because all of your deeds are written in the books and all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our only hope in life and in death is that we have our names written in the Lamb's book of life, that we have given our hope, our life, our heart, our allegiance to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We're going to have a baptism service tonight and those that are getting baptized, they're going to proclaim publicly their faith in Jesus Christ. They're going to tell us their story of how they didn't know Christ as their Savior and Lord and how they became Christians, how they put their faith and trust in him. And tonight they want to publicly declare by going through the waters of baptism that they have been given a fresh and new start that they have been buried with Christ and raised up to new life with and through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And anyone this morning, whether watching online or listening via podcast or sitting in this building, anyone who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour can commit their life to him right now and can, and can know that they are marked by the blood of the Lamb, that know that their name is written in the Lamb's book of life, that know that they are going to an eternity in heaven to reign with Christ forever. I would only want to put my trust in that one thing, in the Lamb of God who died for our sins. And if that's you this morning and you would like to be assured of that fact and would like to commit your life to Christ, would like to become a Christian, a Christ follower, to put your trust in him, your hand in his, to give him your heart and your life. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer this morning, line by line, and you can pray from your heart, just silently in your, in your mind, something like this. Dear God, Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for me. To destroy the works of the evil one. I am sorry for the things that I have done wrong. And where I have trusted in my own rightness before God. Please forgive me. And please come into my life and rule my heart and be my Lord and my Saviour. And please write my name in the Lamb's book of life. I ask you to save me, to wash me and to give me new life. 
And Father, for all of us this morning as we've reflected on some fairly difficult passages of Revelation, we want to remind ourselves as we gaze heavenward that you win, that Christ wins, that the church wins, and that our hope is in heaven. It is why Paul said that as Christians, when we lose loved ones, we do not mourn as those who have no hope. We thank you for the promise of the first resurrection and the hope of the second resurrection. We thank you that those who die in Christ are raised to reign with Christ. That there are those who've gone ahead of us who are waiting for us to join them. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for that hope which inspires us and comforts us. I pray that this book, as we conclude it in the next couple of weeks, will continue to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. In Jesus' name, amen.